This is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. We're in Chapter 7. The Curse of Machinery. Among the most valuable of all economic delusions is the belief that machines on net balance create unemployment. Destroyed a thousand times, it has risen a thousand times out of its own ashes as hardy and vigorous as ever. Whenever there is long-continued mass unemployment, machines get the blame anew. This fallacy is still the basis of many labor union practices. The public tolerates these practices because it either believes at bottom that the unions are right or is too confused to see just why they are wrong. The belief that machines cause unemployment when held with any logical consistency leads to preposterous conclusions. Not only must we be causing unemployment with every technological improvement we make today, but primitive men must have started causing it with the first efforts he made to save himself from needless toil and sweat. To go no further back, let us turn to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations published in 1776. The first chapter of this remarkable book is called Of the Division of Labor. And on the second page of this first chapter, the author tells us that a workman unacquainted with the use of machinery employed in pen making could scarce make one pen a day and certainly could not make 20. But that, with the use of this machinery, he can make 4,800 pins a day. So already, alas, in Adam Smith's time, machinery had thrown from 240 to 4,800 pin makers out of work for every one it kept. In the pin making industry, there was already, if machines merely threw men out of jobs, 99.98% unemployment. Could things be blacker? Things could be blacker, for the Industrial Revolution was just in its infancy. Let us look at some of the incidents and aspects of that revolution. Let us see, for example, what happened in the stocking industry. New stocking frames, as they were introduced, were destroyed by the handicraft workmen over 1,000 in a single riot. Houses were burned. The inventors were threatened and obliged to fly for their lives. An order was not finally restored until the military had been called out and the leading riders had been either transported or hanged. Now it is important to bear in mind that insofar as the rioters were thinking of their own immediate or even longer futures, their opposition to the machines was rational. 
for William Falcon in his History of the Machine Rod Hosiery Manufacturers tells us that the larger part of the 50,000 English stocking knitters in their families did not fully emerge from the hunger and misery entailed by the introduction of the machine for the next 40 years. But insofar as the riders believed, as most of them undoubtedly did, that the machine was permanently replacing men, they were mistaken. For before the end of the 19th century, the stocking industry was employing at least 100 men for every man it employed at the beginning of the century. Arkwright invented his cotton spinning machinery in 1760. At that time, it was estimated that there were in England 5,200 spinners using spinning wheels and 2,700 weavers. In all, 7,900 persons engaged in the production of cotton textiles. The introduction of Arkwright's invention was opposed on the ground that it threatened the livelihood of the workers and the opposition had to be put down by force. Yet, in 1787, 27 years after the invention appeared, a parliamentary inquiry showed that the number of persons actually engaged in the spinning and weaving of cotton had risen from 7,900 to 320,000, an increase of 4,400%. If the leader will consult such a book as Recent Economic Changes by David A. Wells, published in 1889, he will find passages that, except for the dates and absolute amounts involved, might have been written by our technophobes of today. Let me quote a few. During the 10 years from 1870 to 1880, Inclusive, the British Merchantile Marine increased its movement. In the matter of foreign entries and clearances alone, to the extent of 22 million tons, yet the number of men who were employed in effecting this great movement had decreased in 1880 as compared with 1870 to the extent of about 3,000. What did it? the introduction of steam hoisting machines. In grain elevators, upon the wharves and docks, the employment of steam power, etc. In 1873, Bessemer steel in England, where its price had not been enhanced by protective duties, commanded $80 per ton. In 1886, it was profitably manufactured and sold in the same country for less than $20 per ton. Within the same time, the annual production capacity of a Bessemer converter has been increased fourfold, with no increase but rather a diminution of the involved labor. The power capacity already being exerted by the steam engines of the world in existence and working in the year 1887 has been estimated by the Bureau of Statistics at Berlin as equivalent to that of 200 million horses, representing approximately a billion men, or at least three times the working population of the Earth. 
one would think that this last figure would have caused Mr. Wells to pause and wonder why there was any employment left in the world of 1889 at all. But he merely concluded with restrained pessimism that under such circumstances, industrial overproduction may become chronic. In the depression of 1932, the game of blaming unemployment on the machine started all over again. Within a few months of the doctrines of a group calling themselves the technocrats had spread through the country like a forest fire. I shall not weary the reader with the recital of the fantastic figures put forward by this group or with corrections to show what the real facts were. It is enough to say that the technocrats returned to the error in all its native purity that machines permanently displace men, except that in their ignorance they presented this error as a new and revolutionary discovery of their own. It was simply one more illustration of Santiana's aphorism that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The technocrats were finally laughed out of existence, but their doctrine which preceded them lingers on. It is reflected in hundreds of make-work rules and feather-bed practices by labor unions, and these rules and practices are tolerated and even approved because of the confusion on this point in the public mind. Testifying on behalf of the United States Department of Justice before the Temporary National Economic Committee, better known as the TNEC, in March 1941, Corwin Edwards cited innumerable examples of such practices. The electrical union in New York City was charged with refusal to install electrical equipment made outside of New York State unless the equipment was disassembled and reassembled at the job site. In Houston, Texas, master plumbers in the plumbing union agreed that piping prefabricated for installation would be installed by union only if the thread were cut off one end of the pipe and new thread were cut at the job site. Various locals of the painters union imposed restrictions on the use of spray guns Restrictions in many cases designed merely to make work by requiring the slow process of applying paint. With the brush. A local of the Teamsters Union required that every truck entering the New York metropolitan area have a local driver in addition to the driver already employed. In various cities, the electrical union required that if any temporary light or power was to be used in a construction job, there must be a full-time maintenance electrician who should not be permitted to do any electrical construction work. This rule according to Mr. Edwards, often involves the hiring of a man who spends his day reading or playing solitaire and does nothing except throw a switch at the beginning and end of the day. One could go on to cite such make-work practices in many other fields. In the railroad industry, the unions insist that firemen be employed on types of locomotives that do not need them. 
in the theater's unions insist on the use of scene shifters, even in plays which no scenery is used. The musicians' union requires so-called stand-in musicians, or even whole orchestras, to be employed in many cases where only phonograph records are needed.